Good afternoon, and welcome to today's SLIS Colloquia, a program uh, now in our sixth consecutive semester, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are producing this series as part of the school's mission to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, a few announcements. Please look over <clears throat> uh, our new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website all throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous over 50 presentations on the SLIS homepage at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also now watch the SLIS colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our Associate Director, Dr. Linda Main, on the school's homepage. SLIS 21 concentrates on school administration and curricular development and even invites your ideas for new classes. And for everyone in the SLIS community, I'd like to invite you to participate in SLIS Life, the school's social networking space. Meet people in your geographic area, talk with people interested in your area of specialization, or just lurk around and see what others are doing. You, you can find SLIS Life on the school's homepage. Finally, SLIS launched its Masters of Archive and Records Administration degree called MARA in the fall of 2008. MARA inaugurated a guest lecture series during the fall and these lectures will be included as part of the SLIS Colloquia Archive and thus accessible to the entire SLIS community. When it comes to giving away money, Bill Somerville doesn't mess around. So read the San Francisco Chronicle's profile piece on him last November. Bill Somerville is the fastest philanthropist in the West and has pioneered the concept of paperless giving. Bill is a nationally known recognized expert on creative grant making and has developed innovative giving programs for over 40 years. He served for 17 years as the executive director of the Peninsula Community Foundation, which is now known as the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. And in 1991, he founded Philanthropic Ventures Foundation in Oakland, which he specializes in giving uh, creative programs. <clears throat> Under Bill's direction, PVF has, has distinguished itself as a leader in venture philanthropy, a term that Bill coined himself to describe his quick response and high impact grant programs, including immediate response grants and paperless giving, through which the foundation has granted more than $55 million. In 2008, Bill co-authored with Fred Sutterberg, Grassroots Philanthropy, Field Notes of a, Ma a Maverick Grantmaker, and he has taught courses on philanthropy at Stanford University, at UC Berkeley, at Laney Community College. Finally, for our own SLIS students, PVF has for several years administered the Somerton Emergency Grant, which is a non-competitive grant funding up to $500 nearly on the spot 
for SLIS students who encounter unanticipated financial shortfalls. You can find details about the Somerton Emergency Grant by accessing PVF's website at www.venturesfoundation.org. I'm just delighted today to introduce Bill to the SLIS community. Please join with me and the rest of the faculty in welcoming a friend of libraries, librarians, and SLIS, Mr. Bill Somerville. Money is my tool. I've been in this business about 48 years now. And it's interesting in, in working uh, in in all the time that I've been in foundation work, about 35 years, I have never had a librarian come to me and ask for funds. That's rather interesting. Uh, <clears throat> let me give you some facts about philanthropy in the Bay Area, which might be of interest to you. There are 2,067 foundations in the nine-county Bay Area, and they have $35 billion in assets. That's sizable. And they give uh, $2.3 billion a year to uh, 26,700 nonprofits in the Bay Area. So if people say, how many nonprofits are there, that's how many there are. But those are probably 501c3s. If you take people who are also just doing good work and don't have a 501c3, you probably double that 26,000 figure. It's a very rich area in terms of what I call the human services. There's a, even an infrastructure. I used to call it a sub. It's not sub anymore. It's an infrastructure of people with passion doing excellent work to serve our fellow citizens. And it's something we should be very proud of. And I put you in that category. I consider librarianship a human service uh, program. And uh, you certainly are eligible. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with 501c3. Uh, a governmental entity is tantamount to a 501c3 as far as that's concerned. If I, uh, uh, what's interesting is in 2007, foundations in America gave out uh, $35 billion. At the same time, uh, uh, venture capitalists gave out uh, $30 billion. Wouldn't it be fascinating to consider the philanthropic dollars the social venture dollar of our society? I mean, that is something for us to think about. There, as you know, there's 73,000 foundations in the United States. The three kinds of foundations, just for your own information, are a private foundation, which is usually a family or an individual, or a corporate foundation. And, uh, and by the way, corporations or individuals can give money themselves. They don't have to start a foundation to do their giving, but if you have enough money, normally you will start a foundation to do it and to uh, institutionalize it, if you will. And then there are what are called public charities, and those are community foundations. There's about 700 of them in the country, and Philanthropic Ventures Foundation is a public charity. <clears throat> I'm the last person in 30 years to start a foundation on the West Coast without my own money. So uh, it's kind of an exciting thing to do. If you want to try something sometimes, give it a try. It's, it's fun. <laughs> I would, if I have a theme to my talk with you this morning, it is be sure to have a funding collection at your work, where you are. Lately, we're talking with librarians, uh, teaching librarians about marketing as one of your responsibilities. I can think of no more attractive marketing device than to say that you are prepared to help people find money. Uh, by people, I mean people with ideas, I mean people who have uh, programs, I mean uh, individuals who come, who are rep representing a program and they, they're coming in. It's very, very exciting. Uh, the Foundation Center in New York City is the center of all philanthropic information in America. 
and they are willing to create uh, cooperating collections, which means for about a 45% uh, reduction in costs, they will give you all the materials you need to have that collection that you, that you uh, want to have for helping people find funds. Uh, it, get knowledgeable about philanthropy. Take a workshop from the Foundation Center up in San Francisco. There's a woman, I hope someday she'll be one of your speakers, Janet Camarina, uh, who is in charge of the library uh, at uh, San Francisco, the Foundation Center Library, 312 Sutter Street is where it's located, and it's outstanding. My friends, if you use that library seriously, you will find money. And I say that even in this day and age when we have an economic downturn, you'll still find it. Foundations are still giving out, remember I said 2.3 billion in the Bay Area. That's big stuff. I would hope that uh, in your, when you are on your assignment or your job or in your profession, you would hold uh, uh, seminars just like this and um, uh, bring in speakers. I don't see why not. Uh, become a source to help people find funds. It's very important. As soon as I started the foundation, the uh, Peninsula Community Foundation, I started the first funding collection in the West. Now it has sort of petered out, unfortunately, because of the directors of the foundation didn't see it as that important. And the one in San Francisco has become the entity. You do have a funding collection down here in San Jose, but um, the, the mother of all of them is at 312 Sutter Street in San Francisco. I was uh, talking to you about the <clears throat> Summerton Scholarships. It's fascinating what, it, uh, what we say on those scholarships. It says, any graduate student in good standing enrolled at the School of Library and Information Service at the San Jose State University is eligible. That couldn't be a, more of an invitation. It has nothing to do with age or financial status or minority status or anything. It has to do with you. And uh, we gave some, uh, some examples. Uh, re, uh, if you have uh, examples, include, I, <clears throat> they were going to give out $500. What happened is Professor Summerton taught at, Stanford, at, at Berkeley and he had five children and one of them was a librarian. And so she talked her brothers and sisters into creating this scholarship and she, uh, uh, it wasn't that large. So I thought, why couldn't we have something that fall between the cracks? Like one of you needs a special uh, uh, piece of software. Here we go. Or maybe you need some dental, uh, small dental work or eyeglasses or, a com or uh, uh, educational items, transportation expenses from home to school, uh, that sort of thing. All these things are eligible. We're known at the Philanthropic Ventures Foundation for giving grants in 48 hours. We're the only foundation in the United States that does that. I'm arguing that all foundations should do that. I have now been to 350 foundations across the land, consulting with them, slowly but surely, like an iceberg. We're getting some change, but it is indeed slow. And I'm sorry to say that. One of the things that I find uh, of interest in, uh, in uh, in a sense, uh, uh, Anthony is an expert in this thing, is, is working with uh, young people. Uh, I convened all of the head librarians in the San Francisco Bay Area in Burlingame a while back. You can always get people with food, and so we had lunch. And uh, if Bill Somerville is going to have it, you should remember this. It's going to be good food. So, uh, so come to those meetings. But uh, what was uh, interesting is I learned that they were all very, very uh, honest in front of each other. Teenagers aren't using libraries. Now, when I ask librarians about that, because I've been doing that for about seven years now, asking librarians, oh, we've got tons of kids coming in. 
I'm not convinced, uh, but the fact is, is how do you get uh, uh, kids to come in? You know what they did in Tucson? They put a dance floor in the library. I mean, they're dead serious, and uh, I thought that was kind of cute. I mean, they're really going the full mile to try to get uh, people to come in to the, uh, to the library. Uh, so, in a sense, you could do the same thing yourself. One of the main things that a kid has on his mind after school is food. And so uh, you could have food in, in the library. Um, at, I, I do a lot of work at McClyman's High School in West Oakland. Uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, it had the reputation of being the lowest achieving high school in California. That's pretty serious. And has about 800 students at the time. And I realized that the ninth graders weren't reading. And then on my own, I realized that if they're not reading, they're not doing well in anything. I mean, they just aren't, you can't even do math if you can't read. And then they act out. And their acting out often is aggressive, violent behavior. And I came, I thought, by golly, I'm talking to librarians. I consider you folks anti-violence uh, workers in our society. Because literacy is everything to those kids. And uh, if we can teach them to read, we can teach them to be successful. And it is so exciting to see if we can teach them to read. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating. Now with this electronic age, they all have uh, earplugs in and, and their iPod or whatever they have. I, I don't think they're listening to books, but it would be nice, <laughs> nice if they were. But uh, maybe we'll get there someday. Um, the, the fact is, is that you really should see yourself I mean, in, in literacy. Uh, in uh, working with youth and trying to get youth to uh, come forth. Um, the California Endowment, uh, a few years back, set aside $100 million to deal with youth violence. My friends, in Oakland, California, last year, 128 homicides, most of them young people. The main cause of death of a youngster in, in Oakland is being kept, killed by another youngster of the same color. <clears throat> this is unacceptable in our society, and it's real, and we haven't the slightest idea what to do about it. Not the slightest. And I say that with regret, because my background is in criminology. And, and yet, uh, I'm looking at the, uh, at the obvious, and that is the ninth graders aren't reading, and they just go out and maraud. And here we have the whole possibility of libraries and uh, uh, to see if they can be appealing uh, uh, to. Anthony had the job at the uh, Oakland Library of trying to set up a, uh, uh, a facility that would invite youngsters, and that facility has opened its doors now. And I congratulate Anthony for set, doing the groundwork for that, because it's outstanding. And we'll see if it, bring, if it slowly brings people in. Uh, in some cases, you have to go to them. <laughs> There's a librarian out in East Oakland, and uh, in, next to Fremont High School. And so... It's fascinating between you all because there's uh, uh, the, the professional librarians, I'm told, I'm being very frank with you, look down on the school librarians because they're not professionals. They don't really know what they're doing. And uh, so this librarian in, in uh, the Oakland library system at next to Fremont High School, she said to the people, she said, look at, to their library, she says, you have access to the kids. I have access to the books. And so they have a little runner who runs back and forth with books if the, if the teachers need some books that they don't have at the library. The librarian herself has asked to sit in on the faculty sessions of the school 
and she has and does. And by golly, she has an entourage of young people that come over there after school. She's right across the street from the school. And it's, it's really interesting if you're willing to walk the extra mile. Uh, I asked a friend of mine who's a retired librarian, I said, what should I talk to you guys about? <laughs> and it's fascinating because she's been out for a long time now. But she was saying, well, that marketing is getting very important with uh, librarians now. And I'm thinking, good. Uh, and I was thinking how this woman walked the extra mile to do her marketing if she would. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, why couldn't libraries do more work with older people? We now have uh, the retirement of the baby boomers, and it is a huge tidal wave of people retiring. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. Uh, and uh, uh, we could offer and deliver books on tape. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of books on tape. My book is on tape. I put it on tape myself. Probably the most stuttered book you've ever <laughs> heard because I just did it for the first time, and they were very nice to me and let me put it on tape. But um, in convalescent homes and all sorts of things, are libraries getting out? And I guess they are in many places, in some places, and yet there's so much more to be done in, in regards to that and in reading, reading too and getting people to read themselves, and that's with older people. I, I was just talking about young people. I mean, these audiences are phenomenal f for you. Uh, why not classes in electronic devices? I mean, we have a revolution happening in our midst right now. I gave a talk the other day, and a woman came up to me, and she says, I Twittered you. And I thought, that sounds pretty provocative. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, I had no idea what she meant, except she showed me her Blackberry, and uh, uh, there was my speech. Good morning, I'm Bill Somerville and we're going to, and I, uh, I didn't give anybody an advanced copy of my speech and I was wondering, how did she do that? She said, well, my thumbs are a little tired. I can't believe what she did. She's about 55, she wasn't some kid. She was a, a, a grown adult, but she had my speech uh, in, in narrative form on her uh, Blackberry. You know, this is a revolution in our midst. Uh, the, the language we're using, you all know what a cloud is? A cloud is, what is it, Anthony? It's a, well, well, it's a collection of, of, of things. And uh, so we, some people, I, I get together with a, a fellow the other day and he was talking and I had to stop him all the time because I didn't know what to do as he was talking. He wasn't using acronyms, he was using new words that I just, I, I'm at a loss to know. But where, how far will the iPod revolution go? And uh, here we have um, uh, Google copying everything under the sun and um, uh, we have books on iPod, I, I presume. Uh, we either do have or will have very soon. Um, understanding which cell phone to use. As a foundation executive, I used to hold these seminars myself. And I thought, why am I doing this? And I th I'm doing it because no one else is doing it. And then understanding the, concept, the Blackberry concept. Uh, we all assume that everybody understands these things. Uh, and many, many people have the Blackberries on them and all these other kinds of stuff that they are carrying with them. But it's fascinating because uh, we, I would really like to see if there could be a much better understanding of this revolution that is in our midst rather than that we're just, it's just evolving with all of us buying the latest stuff each time. Let me go back a little bit to youth if I can. You had uh, Rick uh, Moss is his name here who runs the African American Librarian and Museum in uh, Oakland and he's a wonderful guy as you know from seeing his talk that he gave to you and everything like that. 
But I'm not sure whether he shared with you that nobody uses that library. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? It's the first Carnegie Library in Oakland. Beautiful building, 30-foot uh, ceilings with uh, murals on the ceiling. Just a magnificent place. And uh, I have said to him, I would like to take the parking spaces out of the front of your um, library and put in a yellow zone there and have buses there. And we'll pay for the buses. Remember, money is my tool. We'll pay for the buses. And I said, wouldn't it be fun if, a, if a, ahead of time, a teacher at a high school or elementary or whatever, junior high, phones your uh, reference librarian and says, we're doing a piece on so-and-so, and could you have some of that material out for me when I come? And uh, maybe in anything else that you think might be of interest? And I bring, my, I bring the busload of kids, paid for by us. I let them out. They go in to the library. The reference library talks to them about the library, about the collection, about the things that you could use. And they all have to write a paper on so-and-so and that sort of thing. And that's where I'm trying to walk the extra mile with folks like you. It's not working. We're not doing it. That's not a criticism of, of Rick. It is, I, I don't know what the deuce it is. You draw your own conclusions. But isn't that interesting, how simple it is, if we wanted to, that we can change things? What's to stop any of you, when you're working at a library, to ask for bus money from a foundation so that, bus, so that when you invite a teacher to come over, it's paid for? Uh, it's only 500 bucks or something like that for a bus. And uh, the kids come over to the school, and, and you could have the material ready for them and everything like that. You're a winner with that teacher. You're probably a winner with those kids, too. And that is maybe some of them their first introduction to your library. I would hope that we would be doing more of that. Uh, Oakland, I'll tell you, needs the best thinking our nation can come up with. Uh, it's uh, in serious trouble. Uh, it's far more murders than in San Francisco. It's the fifth worst uh, place in uh, the United States. Alameda County has the highest incidence of youth violence of any county in the state. On and on and on. I mean, what more do we need? We, we all, all of us, need to move forward if we can. I uh, mentioned public libraries vis-a-vis -vis school libraries. I would hope that there would be far more of a marriage between the two. What we find is that the school library often is too much of an ad hoc arrangement or uh, uh, a here and gone sometime arrangement or some teacher has the job of being the librarian or whatever the case may be. Why do we allow that to continue? We could really bring change ourselves if we wanted to. You could recruit a volunteer to work at the high school under your supervision to uh, work with the kids if you wanted to or something like that. My job is ideas. And my job is to get people to think in original ways about ideas. Too often in our society, we talk of problems. And what are we going to do about the problem? And we put ourselves in a reactionary stance. I'm not interested in solving problems. I'm not interested in problems. I'm interested in ideas, which is to ask a person, what is it you want to have happen, and how do you want to bring it about? And I think that's a f going to bring about a far better world if we can get ourselves that way. Wouldn't it be fascinating if uh, libraries uh, were idea factories? Uh, it would be exciting. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I was talking about that loan program in East Oakland as well. There is a, uh, 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 oh, I, I have a note to myself that what we're really talking about is initiative librarianship. I call it initiative philanthropy. 
And it's when, if you take the initiative, you cause something to happen. And it's very exciting to cause things to happen. Uh, and I, I think that's the most important thing of all. Uh, I'm going to stop now because I hope that some of you have some questions that are provocative and uh, will uh, uh, stimulate discussion be amongst us. A anybody got a question? Uh, first, I'm the uh, director of development for the Martin Luther King Library here on campus. And I just wanted to, uh, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week uh, that was put in by the National Endowment of the Arts that they've been doing a survey of young readers uh, over the last couple of years. And this is the first time they found that the age group between 17 and 24 actually have increased their reading. And they're thrilled. I think it happens to, it's really related to that this is probably the Harry Potter crowd. Um, that they were indoctrinated early on at a young age, how exciting things could be with reading. So that's a good beginning, but it doesn't, it doesn't probably approach the kids um, that you're talking about in Oakland. I was just going to say, I hope that includes low-income kids, and, uh, um, and it's very difficult, I mean, if, uh, especially with immigrant children who are having trouble with language. Mm -hmm. So I went to a nun, Sister Christina, at St. Francis Center in Redwood City, in a low poverty area, and I, she asked me to read Nickel and Dime, if, if any of you have seen it, it's living on minimum wage in America. Uh, 40 million Americans are trying to do it. You can't do it, by the way. And uh, so I read it, and I said, what should we do? She said, let's start a school. <laughs> yeah. And she says, I have a roommate, Sister Susan, who we can talk into quitting her job and working for us. And so I put up the money, and we picked 12 kids. And the criteria was the poverty from which they came, like living in a garage, eight people with toilet privileges. This is real. And so the kids came in uh, kindergarten, not speaking a word of English, and Sister Susan started working with them. And it's true. In 18 months, she had them at the 80th percentile reading in English. You know, that's pretty phenomenal. It shows you the enormous capacity of these kids if you have the right kind of teacher and an outstanding teacher. And that is really exciting. Now those kids are in the sixth grade, and uh, uh, I've stopped funding because a Google executive came along and says, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> I thought, great, you do it then. So he plops down $500,000 for the next uh, cohort of 12 kids that come in. But with those sixth graders, I believe that we have broken the cycle of poverty in their life. And I think that's very exciting. And we hope that they will be going to uh, uh, Santa Clara University at some stage, not too distant future. And we will bring in cohorts of 12 each time. And uh, we're not doing it to prove a point. We're doing it to work with kids that, that just don't make it most of the time and can't get in there. Uh, are we doing things to get immigrants into the library? Uh, it's very important. Um, the, uh, the, the reader, uh, I, I can see mothers coming as volunteers that you recruit coming in as readers to out loud readers to uh, children when they come or uh, it, it good it, to help them with the resumes or to to help them uh, to this would be a marvelous thing for them in their own resume to justify their citizenship application which would be marvelous that they're working at the local library or something like that uh, it uh, why couldn't libraries be a place to learn ESL maybe they are uh, I hope so. Uh, we really need uh, uh, to give a lot of thought to that sort of thing, of, of uh, reaching out. Uh, but when you do reach out, usually you have a huge success on your hand, which is very, very exciting in my mind.
Well, if you ever need um, evidence, we'd be happy to provide it to you to make the case that you're making. Uh, at one time, reading achievement in this, pro this state was among the highest in the nation, and support for school libraries was the highest in the nation, and support for school libraries now stands 50 out of 50, and reading achievement stands 48 out of 50. Some of us think there might be a connection, not to mention that the majority of people in the prisons we keep building, over 50% of them are functionally illiterate or otherwise learning disabled. So we know that we've got to do a better job of prevention rather than continually trying to do remediation. But I have a question for you. We have a real funding problem in the school that I'd like to just take a minute to explain to you. And we can't seem to get any traction for support. And I'm wondering if you can help me understand why. Um, we took on a service from the Colorado Department of Education two years ago called Kids Click. It's a um, a reviewed source of over 7,000 sites that are appropriate for kids in grades four to nine, sort of post-reading ability pre-Google, uh, helps keep kids safe. Um, it allows teachers and parents to search by keyword, by subject heading, by curriculum area, whatever, and find the sites that have been reviewed for them. Um, to, to my astonishment, because it's using old technology, we get over 5,000 hits a day, a day from around the world, most uh, from the United States, but from around the world. 5,000 unique visitors a day to this site. Um, we need about 100,000 to bring it into the 21st century, and we need very little, 25, 30,000, to maintain it because we use a lot of volunteers. Um, we've had a couple of small grants, but essentially we're going to have to close it down. We can't get any interest from public libraries who are doing all this work individually themselves. We can't get it from states that want to set up their own service rather in, in a haphazard way rather than this thing that's working effectively. We can't seem to get it from foundations because we don't want to take advertisers, you know, for this kind of neutral thing. What advice would you give us? I mean, we're on the verge of closing it down, and it's a great pity because it's the only neutral, free service, and clearly is getting interest from teachers and parents and librarians. Would it, would it refer to young people, that your service? Because sometimes we're not looking in the right corner. Uh, like uh, I just mentioned, the California Endowment set aside $100 million for anti-violence. And I bet not, there isn't a library in the world that thought, oh, that's for us. And yet it might have been for you uh, because you're working with youth and uh, uh, you're giving them a different parameter uh, to look at uh, a youth in and the, the work that you're doing. But I don't know that librarians see themselves that way. And so it is really, to, uh, it'd be very exciting to, uh, uh, what you're talking about sounds marvelous, and it would be exciting to see if people, well, what did they fund? They funded the YMCA and the Boys Club and that sort of thing. That's fine, they do good work, but that's all they could do was what I call the rote funding because they couldn't come up with ideas. We're at a loss what to do with youth violence in America today and youth drug use in America today. We're at a total loss. It's as if none of us were young. And uh, we look at those crazy kids, uh, the rebellious, whatever. And uh, yet uh, it was us a while back and if we can think in the different frames of reference sometimes with some of these people, it, it would be very good. I, uh, in 19, early 1960s, I started a reading program at San Quentin uh, Prison using University of California students. It was competitive to be selected as a tutor to go over there and work in the prison. It went on for nine years, then it died. Uh, I didn't do it to make a better prison. I did it to make uh, prison reformers because all of those people that did that, I wanted them to be uh, aware of a prison system and, and to be in favor of prison reform, which we desperately need in this state. Uh, there's another thing that's fun. If you go to sometimes the Burlingame Library, you uh, just open the door and 
you're listening, you're hearing somebody singing opera. And uh, you ask the librarian, she says, yeah, that's downstairs we have brown bag opera on Thursdays. And uh, it's kind of cute. And so you go down there and there's everybody eating potato chips or whatever and right in front of this guy singing uh, the opera. And an opera singer, I, I happen to sing opera, and is trained to, it doesn't matter uh, that uh, people are eating, <laughs> of course they have to eat. And, but your job is to, is to present the, the entertainment to the people. And it was a lovely thing. And so we went to all sorts of libraries saying that. And I used to deal with you guys that you couldn't say no. Because, um, well, f food in the library? I mean, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I said, do you have a janitor? Yeah. Well, they, what do you pay him? $18 an hour. How long does it take to clean this room here? Two hours. Hmm, $36. And I said, uh, how about if uh, we pay for the janitor? And uh, uh, I, I wasn't going to take no as an answer from that person. And we went along, and, and since then, she's now doing God knows what, uh, all sorts of things. And on a nice day, sometimes they'll have the opera outside rather than inside. And it's rather lovely. And it's very, very pretty to hear it resonate through the whole place. It's kind of nice. It's uh, very exciting. I don't know that I've been helpful to you, but, but look under different things. L look under youth. Look under... Uh, crime prevention, Look on, and you think, gosh, is that polluting it? No, not at all. Uh, it's where sometimes people are trying to see if there's new ways that they can tackle some of the social issues that beset us, if you will. Come on, my friends, you have some other thoughts. Yes, sir. Bill, have you uh, been aware of any patterns of initiative that you find among the professionals in the human services that you, that you are excited by? Are there any things that looking over the, the projects that you funded over the years, there are patterns of initiative that you see that, that come forward with uh, certain, certain kinds of people? That's a very good question, Anthony, and, uh, and it, it, it leaves me spellbound because uh, it's hard to answer. Uh, let me be roundabout in answering you. I spend most of my time looking for outstanding people because outstanding people tend to do outstanding work. And, uh, uh, I, uh, in the book that I wrote on philanthropy, and by the way, I brought a copy for Anthony to share with you folks so that you may uh, have access to it. But I said often that we, we fund paper, not people. If it sounds good or sounds compelling, we'll fund it, when in fact the only thing that'll make it work is the quality of the person behind the idea. And so I'm looking for outstanding people. So uh, Anthony's asking, uh, do I find some uh, uh, systems with people? And are they? Uh, no. Uh, the people I work with are very, very individualistic. Drives uh, Omidyar, who started eBay, is driven out of his skull. Um, he says, uh, uh, it's fascinating. He says, you know, there's probably, and I'm just making this up now, but there's 36 major issues in a society and there's, uh, um, uh, well, there's a million and a quarter nonprofits in the United States. You should all know that. It's a telephone book about this size. And he says, if you divide one into the other, it means we've got about 1,200 nonprofits for every issue or something like that. He made up his own straw horse and then he, he tries to, it, it, it just doesn't make sense what he's done. First of all, his figures are all wrong. And second, is it that it's not that simple that you divide one into the other and talk it and say there's redundancy in our society. We need redundancy, by golly. If there's a wonderful library here, we need a wonderful library over here. What's wrong with that? And, uh, and so, but what happens in my work is that the people I work with, are, Anthony, are very individualistic. Uh, they're, they're doing their thing, and God bless them for it, and I fund them 
to do their thing. Uh, they, uh, uh, they're just uh, they're very passionate people. Uh, there's one, Larry Purcell, who's an ex-priest that I work, I've funded him for 30 years now, and I'll fund anything he asks for. And I worked with him for five years before I realized he doesn't take a salary. And I realized that he's probably one of the best uh, poverty workers in San Mateo County. Just an exceptional guy. And he says, I'm not asking the IRS for permission to do what I do. So he's not a 501c3. The government doesn't even know he exists. But as a public charity, I can give him money. Because when I told you about the different kinds of foundations, a public charity has more latitude than a private foundation or a corporate foundation, much more. And they can do, uh, they can fund actually individuals sometimes, artists, that sort of thing. And it gets very exciting. Anthony, if you want to, push some more on your question because I'm, I'm dancing around it. I, I, I don't find systems uh, as such. There are lots of different criteria by which you establish whether someone is taking the initiative, the degree to which they're passionate, the degree to which they're committed, the degree to which they're creative. Those are patterns that you see. So I was just really wondering if you could, if you would, and you did a little bit, tease out some of those patterns. Because we're, we're trying to prepare librarians to take the field, and if we can let them know that there's patterns that you see in how things are recognized for funding and support, we can, we can help work with them on that. It'd be fun if librarians would do like I do, and that is, how do you find outstanding people? I mean, if anyone in this room can answer it, you'll get a Nobel Peace Prize, because there is no uh, quick answer for that. Uh, it is, we're all looking for outstanding people. I read about seven newspapers. I, uh, I get out of my comfort zone. Three months ago, I went to the welfare office in, in Alameda County and stood in line for two hours. And that was out of my comfort zone. And I wanted to meet people uh, who are in that system and hear from them without patronizing them by just asking them uh, little innocent questions. And it's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be fascinating if a librarian did the same thing or something like that? Do, do you get out of your comfort zone as a librarian sometimes? Because uh, to, to, I'm interested in, in meeting people constantly and finding outstanding people. And when, as they say, find them and fund them. Uh, remember, all of our grants are made in, in 48 hours. Uh, that's kind of exciting. We give out about $5 million a year. Uh, and it's uh, with Larry Purcell just the other day. I was he says, you know that truck you gave us and it's one It's a truck that goes up to San Francisco to the produce market and gets food it, it, They beg it so they get it free and then they bring it back and they use it in uh, food uh, uh, Kitchens for uh, the poor and it, it probably uh, serves more poor people than any other truck on, on the peninsula and he says it's worn out <laughs> <laughs> I said, what would it cost for a new one? He says, well, I'll get back to you. So he phones me and he says, $46,000. And I send him a check with a letter saying that this is for your uh, thing. He didn't write a proposal to me. Uh, that's paperless giving, my friends. Uh, we're, uh, but it's also a high degree of trust. And, uh, and trust is very important in our society. It's a, it's a way of honoring people. It's a way of honoring the system. It's, and it, it is a marvelous lubricant because it makes things, you don't have to worry about ulterior motives or cheaters. Uh, uh, we, we went, a person gave me $100,000 a while back and said, spend it on education. 
So we sent a notice in our naivete to 44,000 teachers in the Bay Area. And we said, if you want uh, $500 for professional training or an excursion to pay for the bus or for science equipment or art supplies, just fax us a, a, a request on uh, school letterhead and have it co-signed by the principal. And uh, the first fax came in and I looked at it and I thought, that makes sense. I thought, what are we waiting for? And I gave it to our bookkeeper and I said, write the check. And that we've given out $4 million through those kind of grants now. The teachers call it the fax grant program. They don't know who Bill Somerville is or philanthropic. You just send it to this number and you'll, <laughs> it's so cute. But wouldn't that be fun if we had such the same thing for librarians? We do. I wrote to all the librarians in the Bay Area. And I said, if you would like up to, a, I think it was $1,500, for uh, uh, any th thoughts on your, or ideas on your part to get more teens and young people to use your library, let us hear from you. Very, very little response. You're in a field that's very interesting because it is cloistered, if I may say so. And, uh, but maybe it's self-imposed. Uh, it is not maybe imposed on you. And what's so exciting about this possibility is to, is to share your vast skills and your vast uh, uh, resources uh, in creative ways with the public. Uh, it would be very... Here I am at Woodside High School in San Mateo, County of San Mateo, and the principal says that, you know, uh, after school at 3 o'clock there's a whole bunch of kids out here just messing around right outside my office. And they're all black kids that are from East Palo Alto and everything. And, and so I went out and asked them, I said, what you all doing? Why didn't you take the bus, the 3 o'clock bus? And they said, uh-uh. If we take that bus to, to home, we're just going to get in trouble. Isn't that telling? And so he said, well, why don't you go to the library? And they, oh, you've got to be kidding that we're going to spend three hours, because the next bus is six, that we're going to spend three hours in the library. So he says, Bill, if, you, if I can, I have two outstanding counselors that I would like to pay to stay after school and work with these kids and maybe have an arrangement that uh, for some fun activities over here, you give me an hour in the library. And uh, I thought that was kind of, so what it has evolved into now is a room that he has set aside and they actually bring in tutors uh, from uh, college students from Stanford and other uh, colleges in the neighborhood to work with the kids after school. I've watched it. It's, it's high quality tutoring. I mean, we could have that in the library for that matter. And, uh, they, uh, and then they give them a full dinner uh, at, uh, in the evening, uh, the, which is rather interesting. I don't know how, why that evolved, but it did. And then they take the six o'clock bus home. And, uh, uh, and the whole thing cost us uh, $15,000 to get it started. And I, after uh, we did, I said, could you drop me a note about what we've talked about? He never did, so I sent him the check anyway. And uh, uh, now uh, we have a donor that just says, I like that, and so we've designated 50000 for it now. Um, and uh, you, it's, it's a funny world, because in one sense, you're hearing of all of the depression, recession, the, the market, everything. It, it sounds like we're in the perfect storm with regards to our economy going to hell on a bandwagon. And yet foundations are giving out $2.3 in the Bay Area. I mean, I think librarians should get their share of that. Uh, and that's what I'm here for, is to try to encourage you to go after it. It's an automatic no if you don't try, but it is, it's worth a try to give it a try. And, uh, and like I said, get somebody like uh, Janet Camarina to come down and speak with you sometimes. Uh, be a marvelous uh, uh, person. 
if she's on your side, you'll find money. That's kind of exciting. That's, that's, that's the kind of librarian you ought to be, too. And that is that if here you are working at such and such library in Campbell or something like that, and people know that the librarian there is pretty good knowing about foundations and philanthropic money, and she'll help you. Uh, you know, that would be a high compliment to you. It'd also be fun for you looking for money for some projects that you might have, too, as well. It's, there's no mystery to it, and it, uh, it, it, the world is open to you to give it a try. Your questions and thoughts. Yes. Mr. Semple, you've been talking about um, funding little projects, and I know that in um, there's sort of a shift happening, especially coming from foundations and corporations, to instead of fund lots of little things, to really do a collective and start to fund one larger project to really see some good impact. What are your feelings on that in, in foundations really starting to just take a few key focuses or gathering other philanthropists together, like social venture um, philanthropy, as, as you had mentioned, and really starting to create systematic change instead of funding all these lots of little things, diluting it out to really combining it into one? Well, it, it's a, if that's their choice, that's fine. I don't agree with it. Uh, it's sort of like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. Uh, you know, you take the graffiti out a little uh, incoherent thing, like take the graffiti out of the subway and crime goes down and ridership goes up. An insignificant act causes a major change in the in institution. I happen to believe that grassroots grant making uh, is uh, the way to go and that uh, you work over and over again with people, you, we will change the quality of life. And if you deal with issues where they affect you, uh, fine. I don't get involved in public policy. That's very important. But that's something I just don't touch. Uh, the big foundations do touch that sort of thing. But for all of them to come together to see if they can work on literacy, is, uh, I, I don't find that that has great success. Often they spend so much time designing their grant-making program, and, and then you have to fill out about that much paper uh, to get the, the grant, and by the time you get it, it's a reimbursement for your time. Uh, it just makes you really angry. Uh, it's very patronizing by my colleagues to require you to do that, in my estimation. I, I don't like that. Uh, and so uh, I've gone the opposite route. I mean, we're, we're the little guy, and, but we give out chunks of money. Uh, and uh, we give it out quickly, and we give it out with, uh, without that fanfare of that other stuff that goes on. Uh, there's room for all of us in the world, but uh, that's my preference. I'm curious about um, your sense in terms of, you said it's like to find unique individuals. I'm actually quite curious as a fundraiser, how do I find more people like you? Where are those people? Well, keep yourself alert to what's happening. Uh, there was a, uh, in November, a large article about myself and my work uh, in the Chronicle. And uh, uh, that was uh, a very, uh, it was interesting. It brought in 200 requests for funds and no funds. <laughs> I mean, no funders said, here, I'd like to be part of that. And because we're a public charity, it's not, it's money that we gather. It's not just that a huge uh, endowment that we have. So. Uh, you, you keep your eyes open and keep looking out. And foundations are perfidious lovers. They love you and leave you uh, in the sense that it's very frustrating because you'd love if they could, uh, you know, give you continuing money. But they, and uh, people like the uh, Hewlett Foundation do give continuing money for maybe seven years, but at some stage they phase out. Uh, by the way, I wrote a paper on if I had a billion. And... Uh, I would do some very, very different uh, grant making. 
I would give permanent money to people. Uh, it would uh, be very exciting to consider that sort of thing. My friends, it's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much.